Alright, so I'm just going to give you a little bit of background information on who I am, if that's alright. I am from Pennsylvania in the United States, but I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia until I was nine years old. Um, and I actually accepted Jesus at the age of four. I remember this like time. I was with my mom. We were watching TV, and she was playing some like homeschooling <laughs> curriculum. And so I was watching the homeschooling curriculum, and this teacher came on, and she started to talk about this man who was the perfect man and this loving and like kind man who died so that I wouldn't have to die. That was kind of how it was explained for like a four-year-old's mind. Like, this man died so that you will never die. And he loves you a lot. And I don't know, something in that moment, I just started to cry. I'm like, why does this good man have to die? Why did he die? Um, but I felt so compelled when the teacher on the screen, she asked me, she's like, do you want to commit your life to him? Do you want Jesus to be your friend? I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and so at that moment, I accepted Jesus into my heart. My mom prayed with me. And then um, I was like going to church ever since then with my mom. And then um, at the age of 16 is when it actually got serious. Because I realized that I was actually living life for myself. Um, I was a perfectionist. I was like straight A student. I had like a million goals in mind ever since I was like nine years old. I was like, I'm going to go to Harvard on a full scholarship. Watch me. Like no one can stop me. And um, then at the age of 16, I realized something was wrong. I realized that I was like in control of way too many things. Like I was trying to control the outcome of my life all my goals. I was trying to control what people thought of me and like how they perceived me. And I was just like, this is bad. (laughs) This is really bad. And so at the age of 16, I rededicated my life to the Lord, but this time I did it in a surrender. And I was like, God, I give everything to you. You can have my life. You can change my plans. You can take all of my dreams and put yours in. And most of all, God, you can take my reputation. Like you can make me the butt of society if you want, because If I have you, that's enough. Like, you're better than everything else. So that's the prayer I prayed, and then God took me seriously. (laughs) He changed all of my plans. It took, yeah, I know, right? He does that. He took me on this journey that was nothing that I ever dreamed of, but everything that I wanted deep down inside. He started to have me encounter him in ways I didn't know that were possible. He opened my eyes up to how big he was, and I was like, holy crap, God, this This is what I have been living for. Like, I have been waiting for this moment my entire life. And long story short, when I was in college, I ran into a great group of people. And they were um, just random acquaintances. I was sat down on the bus. It was orientation week. And then I was sitting there, and I was wearing this purity ring. And then the guy who's the tour guide next to me goes, is that a purity ring? And I was like, yeah, it is. And he was like, I wear one too. And I was like, oh. (laughs) You know, it's... (laughs) Oh, purity ring, for those of you who don't know, it just meant that I chose to wear a ring to show others and to remind myself that I wanted to stay pure for marriage. That I wasn't going to date, like, sleep around until I got married. So there I'm sitting, like, sitting on the bus. This guy's like, hey, we have a Bible study. Do you want to come? And I was like, awesome, sure. So I started going to this Bible study. And then through that Bible study, I started to encounter God. Like, I started to hear his voice in ways I'd never heard it before, like, very clearly telling me, encouragements about myself, encouragements about other people, speaking clearly to me about his word. And I was like, this is crazy. But then that group of friends, we became really close and we started to have like a house of prayer together. So what we did is two to three times a week, we opened up our house and we invited people over just to worship. And we would worship for like two to three hours, just like nothing but worship. 
and we would pray. Sometimes we would share the word together, and then we would pray for people who needed prayer, and then we would call it quits. And then another day of the week, we'd invite our house, like open up our house and invite people for food, and we just eat together. So we just lived in this like lifestyle of constant worship, constant prayer. And God started to move and do like kind of crazy things. Not kind of crazy things. He did crazy things. So we started like having discipleship training. We're like, hey, the presence of God is with us. Like literally there'd be times in worship where I was like, I bet if I opened my eyes, I would see angels all around. Because I could like, I could just like sense their presence around. It's like there are angels in this room. And I actually had friends who were part of that meeting who could see angels. And they're like, yeah, there were angels with us here tonight. And we'd be like, that's great. <laughs> I'm like, crazy. They also saw demons, which is like, you know, if you want the gift to see angels, just be aware that there's another side. Um, and so we started hosting like discipleship meetings. And we would pray for people and they would just, we'd just get together and we'd repent. We'd confess our sins. And then we'd say, God, I'm done with this sin. And we'd, we would like, We'd like stand up and be like, I'm done with this. I'm like, I'm starting a new life today. And then we would give our lives, like give that area of our hearts to Jesus. Because when you come to Jesus for the first time, you bring him everything that you know of that you can bring him. But there are areas of your heart that you don't know of that you haven't brought him yet. So there's this continual process of going before the Lord and going, God, I found a new area of my heart that's not completely surrendered to you, an area of my heart where I'm still in control and I want to give this to you. And so we would do that week after week, every area we addressed in our heart, we would do that. And amazingly, we had people starting to get delivered from demons right in our living room. And it wasn't some crazy like Hollywood, like exorcist thing. It was just suddenly like, you know, demons recognize we like, hey, shut up, don't harm anyone, get out. And then gone, the person is free. And we're like, we don't know what we're doing. Like, we're not trained ministers. We didn't ask God to deliver people in our living room. We didn't ask for angels to come. All we did was worship God and give him our whole lives. And suddenly, supernatural things are starting to happen among us. We would go out on Halloween, not to condemn people or hold signs and tell people that you're, you're evil or anything like that. We'd go out on Halloween and we'd take our guitar and then we'd like, in the middle of Waikiki. So I went to university in, in Hawaii, which is awesome. If you ever have a chance to like go there, do it. Um, and we'd stand in the middle of Waikiki where all these people are like just partying it up. And we would just start to praise God, just sing worship songs. And people would come up to us and they'd be like, why are you singing songs to God. And we just start conversations with them. Like, hey, we love you. And like, we just want God to be worshipped here tonight because if we don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. And then people would like, no, no one accepted Jesus on the spot, but people were like, hey, that's cool. Yeah. Hmm. Hey, I used to, I was a pastor's kid before and I haven't been to church in a really long time. I think maybe I should go. Like, yeah, man, we can recommend churches for you. Like, sure. You know, and there were just all these crazy encounters. And then we'd, we'd see people who were sick or had like broken arms or like broken like legs or whatever. They back pain. And we just pray for them. Like, hey, can we pray for you? Just lay our hands on them and be like, Jesus, we thank you that you have all authority over this body and disease and sickness. And we command this to be healed in Jesus' name right now. And instant healings. In fact, I had one friend who really went after it. And he was like, no shame, like no fear of people whatsoever. Not at all. <laughs> like this big, like six foot, like tall, like man, and just like, yeah. We just go and be like, hey, can I pray for you? And they're like, yeah. And in the course of one year, he saw 300 healings. That's almost a healing every day. People getting out of wheelchairs, people taking off their casts, like just crazy stuff. 
And then one day when I was visiting him after like a really long time, I'd graduated and gone back to Hawaii. <clears throat> he goes, hey, Emily. And I was like, yeah. He's like, you're going to walk in the same kind of miracles, signs and wonders. And I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? Because I saw, like, I would pray for people. I've seen lots of things get healed as I've prayed. But I never thought that I would make it like a complete lifestyle. But at the moment when he said that, I was like, hey, this is not just a lifestyle for this one guy who's not afraid of people and goes around praying for them. This is a lifestyle for me too. In fact, this is not just a lifestyle for me. This is a lifestyle for all Christians. We're meant to be walking in power. We're meant to be walking in power, but that power comes from worship and it comes from being in the word. It comes from being in prayer. It comes from building a relationship with God, right? And so then there was like this part of me that's like, man, I want everyone I know to be equipped. I want everyone I know to be equipped in this so that we can all make a difference for the gospel, um, and then I like graduated and like came and I was like working in Korea and I entered Emmaus campus ministry. Awesome things are happening. And then I hit this year and it was like, poof, like I hit a wall, just like ran straight into cement and like everything I had ever believed in. I just like completely forgot, like literally about halfway through this year, I was like, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. Like, you know, like I'm an intern pastor, <laughs> I lead Korea University's campus ministry. Like, I go up on stage and I preach the gospel. And then a few days later, I'm in my room going, God, I don't, I don't know if I want to be a Christian. Like, I believe that you're real. And I believe that you love me. But right now, I feel like you hate me. And you're not anywhere around me. And I don't think I signed up for this. This is not what I signed up for. I signed up for signs and wonders and miracles. And I signed up for, like, a platform to influence people's lives. And then I realized, oh, snap. I've got some idolatry in my heart. Like, I'm running after the things that God can give me rather than God himself. But I didn't really want God himself either. Because I felt like God wasn't paying attention to me. Because I was going through trials. So I was experiencing hardship. It was like, God, you're not here. So I don't think I want this anymore. And so I'm going through this like internal struggle of like, I know I'm a Christian and I do believe in God, but at the same time, I feel like I'm like against God. So what do I do? What do I do? And this is what happened. Retreat happened three weeks ago, right? Some of you were there. I was there. Um, you might have heard me. I answered an altar call. And um, they just called the staff up and I wasn't really going to go up because I was like, that's for pastors. The big guy pastors like who are, you know, pastoring hundreds of people. I'm just going to sit here <laughs> and just keep praying. And then some other people are like, hey, Emily, you need to go up. You, you should go up. You should go up. And sometimes it takes those people in your life for like, you, move. <laughs> like You don't have an option, you know? Like, okay. So I just listened to those people and I went up there and I'm like, I'm at the altar. <clears throat> now, meanwhile, just like background, like the previous day I had been in a, a prayer session with someone from Solomon's porch. And we spent three and a half hours of me basically going through unforgiveness prayers, like forgiving people in my life, forgiving God for stuff I was holding against him, forgiving myself. So there's this like aspect of, I was opening up my heart to God already because I started forgiving people. And that's a huge, huge part of our walk with God is forgiveness. But so here I am at the altar and I'm like, all I could say at the altar was like, God, I need you. I need you. This isn't going to work unless I have you. Like, and right now, everything sucks, and I'm just like a miserable like worm 
So I need you. Like, you have to come. You have to come. And so I said that, and suddenly he brought some promises to mind. Things he had promised me about revival. Things he had promised me about, like, just great things in my life. And I immediately dismissed them. I was like, whatever. It's like, whatever. And then, out of the corner of this ear, exactly this ear, God goes, that's not how I treat my promises. And I was like, snap. And then, like, if you heard someone screaming at the top of their lungs... That was me. Not because I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs. But sometimes when God is dealing with deep issues in my heart, I like just lose control. And I think because I was someone who held on to control for so much of my life, that's why it manifests that way. Is I just like, well, you said you didn't care about your reputation. And you said that I could do whatever I wanted. So now you're on the floor screaming like an idiot. So I was screaming at the top of my head and wailing and wailing and just beginning to cry and grieve. Grieving these deep promises that I felt God had ignored and had looked over. And then just allowed God to suddenly bring hope back into my life. Like It was like very supernatural. Like God just, poof, fire. Like, like, like literally, I don't know if you've ever felt the Holy Spirit before, but... The way I feel Holy Spirit is often like literal fire inside my like rib cage that I can't like contain. And so like, like fire in my chest and suddenly I have hope again. Now, you may say, well, that's awesome. I hope when I'm going through a hard time in life, God will knock me on the floor and supernaturally replace my disappointment with hope. It's actually not awesome, guys. There is a better way. That way is to stay in prayer and to stay in the word and stay communicating with Jesus. Because then it's actually you saying, God, I love you and I choose you. And I will choose you again and again in spite of this trial. And that's like you like in a relationship with a real person, like when you're married. And you go to like that person saying, we're having some like rough seasons right now, but I still choose you. We're still married. I still love you. And that sense of commitment, that is like, that brings the Lord so much delight, but it's also counted to you as righteousness and faith to still choose God in that season. That's the ideal way. When you go through what I went through, just being you know, on the floor screaming like a crazy person and then supernaturally getting hope again, that's really just you being humbled to a great degree and being like, I'm so sorry, God, that I like completely rebelled against you and I am the ungrateful person and right now, God, I'm going to choose to be grateful. I'm so thankful. I'm so sorry. I don't get in heaven, you know, when we get rewards for our faith, I don't get any rewards for being on the ground. Zero. Zilch. That is God being like, you are so hard-hearted. Let me help you out of his infinite mercy towards me. Where the other option, where choosing to stay in the place of prayer and worship, that, that is love. That's choosing to love God. And that is something that I will get a reward for, especially when I go through seasons where things aren't going my way. And so that is a much longer version of the story than I was planning on telling you. But I want us to kind of go into scripture and to look at why God is bringing us through hardships and what we're supposed to do about it. Because as I was like, kind of praying for you guys and praying about tonight, the one thing I realized is we learned over this semester how to interact with the world. Like we learned how to be a blessing 
in our workplaces, in our families, in like in with wisdom. Like we learned in our small groups, like this is how I live as a Christian in the world. But I realize that many of you, if you're not going home to America now, you will be going home to America very soon. And some of you aren't going home to America. Some of you will go home to places like Malaysia or England or Australia, wherever. But in all of these places, let's be very, very clear. Christianity is no longer simply a topic that people are kind of like put off by. They're not simply unreceptive to like our message and our lifestyle. It's now becoming hostile. Like, we don't want your presence here at all. And that is the nature of Christianity around the globe. Like, in every country where there's persecution, persecution is getting worse. Where there isn't persecution, there's starting to be persecution. So, at some point in our lives, whether it's now or whether it's five years from now, ten years from now, we're going to start to encounter culture that doesn't want us to be a Christian. And if we don't know why we're Christians, if we don't know why we love Jesus... And what like the purpose is in going through trials, then we will just give up on Christianity altogether. And that's not something that I want for us. And so I was like, God, we need to go to a passage of scripture that talks about this. And so God led me to Hebrews chapter 12. So I invite you to open your Bibles or your smartphone apps. Just a note about analog things. If you actually use a real Bible and then keep a physical journal that you write in, you process and remember information better. Studies show that if you do stuff on the computer all the time, even if you take notes verbatim and like review them in a regular like schedule, you still won't remember things as well as someone who did it with pen and paper. It's just because something about that screen makes it a mindless activity and you don't process. So just letting you know, Having an actual Bible is a really awesome thing, and it's an amazing blessing that we get to enjoy. Okay, so we're going to be starting. That's like fun fact. If you're around me long enough, I know a lot of weird information, just random information. So let's start from verse 11. We're going to go from verse 11 to verse 15. I'm going to read from the ESV, but if you can all read with me, we're going to start in one, two, three. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. The bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Amen. We were reading from different versions, but it was beautiful. Thank you for keeping up. (laughs) All right, so he starts off by going, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but we're actually interrupting him in the middle of an argument that he's making. So basically, he's dealing with people who are in the middle of persecution, in the middle of a really rough time. And they're at the end of the rope, and they're basically like, We just want to give up. There's no point in living as a Christian anymore. Like, what's so wrong with, like, like sexual immorality? What's so wrong with, like, being angry at my neighbor and not forgiving them? What's so wrong? It's too hard to live as a Christian in this world, so I'm just going to give up my faith and just go with the flow. 
I think that would be easier. I'm still saved. I'm still saved. I know where I'm going to be when I die. So I'm just going to live in the way culture is going. And the writer of Hebrews throughout this whole book is like, no, that is not the right response. That is not what you were made for. You are made for more than that. And you have access to Jesus who's going to help you get through this. So he's been saying that throughout this entire book. And then we get here where he's like, here's what happens when you go through trials. You may feel abandoned by God. You may feel like the world is against you. However, God is actually orchestrating this because you are his son. And he loves you. He loves you very much. That's why you're going through this. And, and we go, what? No, <laughs> this is uncomfortable. It stinks. Like I am so frustrated and depressed right now. I'm disappointed. And why would God do this to me? That's not what a loving father does. And this is where he goes in verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. As if he could hear their response to him. It's like, well... I know that it sucks, but discipline is not supposed to be pleasant. When you were disciplined by your parents growing up, was it ever pleasant to you? Never. <laughs> not once, you know? It's like, And he's like, now I understand that your parents may have disciplined you in an unrighteous way, like maybe just out of their anger and not for like, you know, a good reason. He's like, but your father in heaven is doing this for your good. And so we're like, okay, well, what, what good is that? If you're, if this, if this stings and it's not pleasant, then like, why, how can it be for my good? And this is where some, a verse like Romans 8, 28 comes into play. It's a very famous, very misused verse. It's like, God will work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the way that verse gets used and tossed around is that if you love God, the circumstances in your life are going to work out. And the promises that you have will eventually come to fruition. But that's not what that verse is saying. If you read into the context, the next verse and the verse after that, it's basically, no matter what you're going through, God will use it for your good so that you represent Christ. So that you will be molded into the image of Christ. That's the good that God is talking about. And it's the same good that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. In fact, the chapter before this, chapter 11, he actually writes a whole list of people who never saw the circumstances work out in their favor and never saw the promises fulfilled in their lifetime. Did God keep his promises? Yes. But they didn't see it. Yet those people chose to love the Lord. And so he's going, everything's going to work out for your good, but not because of the circumstances. Like Circumstances might not ever get better. Now we can believe and we can pray and we can have faith that circumstances will get better, but there's a chance that it won't. And God's saying, this is still for your good so that you'll know my son, Jesus. And so we go, okay. Okay. Logically, that makes sense. I can understand. Why would you put me through trials so that I can become refined? My faith will be refined and I will fall more in love with Jesus. But that still doesn't really sound like something that I want to do. Still, nah, do I really want to be like Jesus? Nah, nah, I'm a human. And you know, I'm not perfect anyway. So what's the use of pursuing perfection? You know, like, nah, just, yeah. But the truth is, 
there is actually a great joy in being perfected by God. There's a blessing in that place, and it's from a place of intimacy. Because you're going through trials, you begin to draw closer to God, right? As you draw closer to God, you get to know God's character better. And God is everything good and perfect and right that you've ever encountered. Perfect love, perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect acceptance, perfect comfort. Everything good and right that we could ever want is in him. And so then, as we get to draw close to him through our trials, we begin to experience this side of him, and that begins to set things right. Even though our circumstances are chaos, we begin to have this relationship with him where we're receiving him as he really is. Not for the stuff that he can give us, but for who he actually is. And that intimacy begins to just, like, make everything rosy. Like, the world could be falling apart, but, like, I am okay. Like, because I know God. And I have a relationship with him. And the other thing it does is that in your intimacy in that place, as you're going through this trial, as you begin to look more like Jesus, because, let me tell you, if you're spending time in the presence of God, if you are in his joy and in his comfort and in his love on a daily basis, you will suddenly have patience for the person who annoys you. You will suddenly have a kind answer to give to the person who insults you. You suddenly will be able to minister to people when you have like nothing left to give. And so what happens, not only are you being blessed through intimacy in God, but suddenly you're now looking like Christ and his love to other people. And so the first thing that the author of Hebrews in this passage is telling us is like, one, this is for your good because it's drawing you close as a son to know your father. You're going to know him. It's going to be a blessing to you and a blessing to the people around you. And he continues and says, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. A harvest of righteousness and peace. So they're like, okay, harvest of righteousness and peace. Like, what does that actually mean? What does that really mean? Harvest of righteousness and peace. And why do I want that? Why would that be a good thing? Well, if you have righteousness, it is like a seed that you plant in the soil and grows into plants that bear fruit. Righteousness or righteous acts are actually actions that represent the character of God that walk out of his nature. And so as you live out of the nature of God in righteousness and plant these seeds of these actions, they cause more righteousness to spring up everywhere. So when you have one righteous person in a city shining their light into the darkness, you will suddenly have other people attracted to that light, receiving the fruit of righteousness and like enjoying what righteousness does because righteousness causes justice to happen on the earth, like compassion and care for the broken and, you know, love and and peace and forgiveness. People are eating that fruit. They're experiencing that fruit as they're drawing close to this righteousness and then they start mimicking it or at least start longing for it. Then you eventually have more people who are righteous and it kind of multiplies. It's a multiplying effect. When you do something that's good, it's not simply, I did a good thing, and I'm a good person, so God is not angry with me. It's not that. It's not, I did a good thing, and so now I can feel good about myself. It's not that either. Although doing good things does make you happy. It's, 
When I do a good thing, I am actually planting a seed that will lead to a multiplication of this goodness in my circumstance, in this city, in my family, etc., etc. Wherever you choose to sow righteousness, you're actually choosing to plant something that will grow. It's not, it's not linear. It's not like, well, like A to B and done. That event is done. No, it, it multiplies. It has ripples effects everywhere. And so he's also saying, when he says harvest, righteousness that bears a harvest, he's talking about, look, just, you can't see it. You can't see it. You don't know because you're in the midst of trial. But if you plant this seed, it's going to multiply. And it's going to bring a harvest of blessings that will come back to you and to the people around you. So that's the second reason he gives. is like, one, you're going to be blessed by this trial and enduring through it because you're going to know God, your father. You are being treated as a son. He is with you. He is fighting for you. This intimacy is yours. But two, as you choose to persist in righteousness in spite of the surrounding culture, you are going to cause a harvest of change to crop up. And that's part of the amazing gospel of the kingdom is that what we do as Christians, as like as our small little acts, God multiplies for his glory. And then the third thing he says, therefore, therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is an interesting phrase, and he's not talking about physical healing in this instance. He's talking about like healing of hearts, people who have been discouraged, people who have given up. When he says like strengthen your knees and like your your weak arms, he's talking about like an athlete who's been running for such a long time they can't feel their limbs anymore. Have you ever been in a situation where you'd been stuck in that hard circumstance for so long you just grew numb? couldn't feel anything anymore he's speaking to those people he's like if you have revelation of the if you have revelation of god then keep pressing on and enduring because your endurance will help the people who've grown numb it'll help the people who can't fight for themselves right now and who have want to give up the race so he's like strengthen your arms strengthen your knees like press forward because sooner rather than later you're going to see the healing of your hearts the healing of not only your heart, but the healing of those around you. And so it's this like, you notice this kind of theme through what he's saying of continuing like, this isn't about you. This isn't about you. The hardship you're going through, I'm molding you to be like Christ so that you can be a blessing. The righteousness I'm asking of you, I'm asking of you so that you can reap a harvest of righteousness to bless the people around you. The Courage that I'm asking you to have to keep running forward is so that the people around you will be encouraged and healed. So when we're going through a trial and we're like, God, you've abandoned me. I'm sick of this. God's like, I'm right here. Keep running because this is going to end well. This is going to end well. And we know this because, verse 2, which I'll read for you because I like this verse. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross at the right hand of the throne of God. And then scorning its shame. Oh, sorry. 
endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have this Jesus who endured trials on our behalf in order to love us. Why did he go through the trial? Not for himself. It wasn't about him. He's receiving like glory in heaven forever and ever and ever because he did it. But he went through it on our behalf for the joy set before him, which is us. On our behalf, he struggled and fought and now is sitting in victory. Now we, his people, part of his body, if we struggle through trials like he struggled through trials, we also will be sitting in victory. It's guaranteed. Guaranteed. Victory from the day to day, but also victory in the end. Eternal victory. If God has struggled through trials and will be like living in glory forever and ever, luckily, although we did nothing to deserve it, we also will live with him in glory forever and ever. Amazingly, like that makes absolutely no sense. Like I was wicked and you had to save me from my wickedness. And then as I live my life, I'm still a rebel and I still get mad at you. And I still like, like a unfriendly counterpart to your plans sometimes. And still you promise me glory with you in heaven and victory forever and ever. It makes no sense. God was a businessman. He would be really bad at it. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> Because he's like, it just doesn't make sense. That's no return. It's no return for God. Except that he gets a people that he gets to fellowship with forever. And for him, the relationship is enough. It's not about how much I invested in you and how much I get back. It's about how much I invested in you and now I get to enjoy your presence. That's what he wants. And what he is hoping for us as well is that we'll still get to a place in life where we're able to enjoy his presence through trials. And then to someone who's, maybe when we're like 30 years old, no, 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 because I'm 28 and that's way too soon. (laughs) Maybe when I'm like 50 years old and I've been through a lot of trials, I'll get to a place where I'm not faced by them anymore and I will just be content in the Lord. I hope so. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there. But at that point, I'll be able to walk up to a brother or sister who's struggling in Christ being like, hey, I've been there and God pulled me through. It's going to be okay. And so that there's this, there's this aspect of like, we haven't seen it yet. We really just don't know. But when we're in the midst of a trial, we can't count ourselves out. And we can't get angry at God because we haven't seen the end yet. We don't know. But we can tell from this verse that there's victory at the end. There's victory at the end. And then the, the clincher to all of this, in verse 14, he says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And he just kind of expands on it a little bit more in verse 15. So remember how like at the beginning I had talked about how the Hebrew people were just ready to give it up. They're like, I'm saved. And so I can just live life the way I want it because this trial facing this opposing culture is too hard for me. So I'll just live quietly as a Christian in my home. Excuse me. I'll live quietly as a Christian in my home, but then out on the streets, I'll just kind of go with the flow. I won't make a big stand for anything. And the writer of Hebrews is like, well, that's not really how it goes. You can't do that. You can. It's not what you want to do. Why? Again, he says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you have enjoyed anything, 
in your relationship with God. If you've enjoyed any blessing from knowing his presence and having salvation, then there is a social responsibility we have to live counterculturally. There is like a responsibility we have to live like Christ or else no one else will see Christ. No one else will get to experience the blessings that we've experienced. And I don't know about you, but that convicts my heart. Like I stand here like not having succeeded in this whatsoever, clearly, because God had to knock me to the floor two weeks ago and pull me out of my mess. But God, he wants us. He's, he's rooting for us to be in a place of victory throughout our trials so that other people will know his victory. So that other people will know his comfort, his joy, his peace. And so when we make even one small compromise on an area where you're like, you know what? I just don't, I just don't want to be holy in this area. We don't call it holiness, right? What would we say? Like, ah, like I can't be bothered. Can't be bothered to mess with that. Can't be bothered to read my Bible. I can't be bothered to pray today. I'm too tired. I'm sure God understands. You know, like, God's not condemning you, like, because you have Jesus, thankfully, standing <laughs> between you and the Father, being like, giving you his righteousness. But at the same time, we're not investing into the blessing of other people, which is what we're called to do. Like, we're called to be influencers. We're called to be people who transform culture around us. Just like my crazy college days when I was like, knew nothing, and all I did was worship the Lord. Suddenly, entire, you know, friendships and families and stuff are being changed. One Christian comes into our prayer meeting, and then their life gets changed, their family gets changed, their friendships get changed, workplaces get changed, People start coming to know the Lord. People start getting, like, you know, radically affected by the gospel. And that's what we're called to do. And I know, like, there are lots of layers, right? There's so many layers. Like, how do you handle, like, LGBTQ? What does the Bible say on that? Where do you stand? All those things have to be dealt with seriously in prayer. How to love and still stand with what the Bible says. But it's possible and something we're called to do. We're called to live in holiness for the blessing of the nations. And so that's kind of where I want to leave us today. It's just, you're called to be an influencer. Your daily walk with God matters. The stands you take, even in the awkward moments where you don't get any honor for it, where people slander you, where they make fun of you, those moments matter. And that God is going to honor that. But as we look towards our life and the fact that persecution is going to get stronger and society is just going to become more hostile towards us, we have to ask ourselves, as I stand right now where I am in my faith, do I want this? Do I want this? Am I ready to face persecution? And if I'm not, then do I recognize how much God has already done for me? Do I recognize the depth of my own sin? Or, I mean, different questions apply to different people. Or, am I willing to recommit my life to being a place to allow me to be molded into that person who can face persecution? You know, we go through different seasons and we're at different places throughout all of those seasons. But if we're not ready to face persecution, if we're not ready to be the one like lighthouse in the midst of like oncoming waves of like, 
you know, people who disagree, then we have to ask ourselves, what am I being a Christian for? What am I living for? Am I living to see certain promises to be fulfilled? Am I living so that I can be comfortable or just like have a supernatural God kind of provide for all the things that I need, you know? Or am I living so that people will know Jesus, like his love, his comfort, his peace, his healing, his power? And so um, if worship team can kind of come up, I'm just going to provide a space to deal with those questions in your heart before the Lord. It's really just going to be a time of asking God again, being like, hey, God, why am I a Christian? Ask yourself, why am I a Christian? Do I want this? If I don't want this, then God, I got to make a decision if I'm in or out. And I need your help. And then if it's on your heart, you know, if it's on your heart, that, hey, I really, I really feel like I don't understand everything yet, but I want to make this my all. I want to live for Jesus, and I, I want to recommit my life, and I want to be in a place where I say, this is worth it. Every trial is worth it. Then I'm going to invite you just to come up and just kneel here. No one's going to pray for you. We're not going to prophesy over you or anything like that. Just you and the Lord. And I, I had to do this after God knocked me to the ground three weeks ago and go, okay, God, do I want to be a pastor? Do I want to be a Christian? And then recommit my life. I had to recommit my life. It's something we have to do repeatedly or else we'll just, we'll lose touch with God. We'll, we'll be overcome by our trials. We have to surrender repeatedly and say, God, I believe you're worth it. I believe you're worth it. So as um, we just go through one song, we're just going to take time before the Lord to recommit our hearts. And then I'll, I'll close this in prayer.